and welcome to a special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast, where we will not talk about Asian cinema today. Instead, we were doing a Halloween special where we will be talking about John Carpenter, Carpenter's The Thing, as well as uh, everything related to it. Uh, my name is John, and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm okay, John. How are you? I'm good. You know, we're getting ready for Halloween. It is uh, a bit... As of our as of the time we're recording this, it's uh, about a week removed. But of course, this will come out probably come out you know a couple of days before Halloween or something like that, depending on when I'm done editing it. But it should be uh, right on time. But getting ready for it, I don't know if you are making any special preparations for Halloween. We'll get a jack o' lantern at my house, um, and uh, maybe some Halloween themed cakes, and uh, continue watching horror movies. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this previously last year. Uh, but uh, last year I didn't get any trick-or-treaters, but now I live in a place where there is some residential uh, residential uh, houses. It's a sort of a residential neighborhood, so there might be, there's uh, potentially there will be trick-or-treaters, although I don't know if they're, if they're going to go to the rental apartments, so I probably won't get any this year either, but we'll see. Is your new place like Haddonfield from Halloween? Mm. Uh, not exactly, but it's not too different from it either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a sort of a suburban residential. It's a small city kind of a thing. Yeah. So like I mentioned that today we're doing a Halloween special, which our season is over, of course. But like I mentioned in the closing of uh, last episode, that doesn't mean we won't come back and do whatever you know special uh, we feel like it, and just like we've established, our specials don't necessarily have to obey any rules or any uh, to adhere to any theme. So that's why we decided to talk about uh, an, a non-Asian film this time, and that is uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. However, we will still—I think it's still a good idea to kind of talk about what we've been watching or reading these uh, last uh, couple of weeks since last time we spoke. So why don't you go ahead, Jason, and tell us what's uh, what you've been doing 
it's been uh, movies, movies, movies. Um, I had the good fortune to cover the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival. I believe you mentioned that last time, right? Yeah, I'm still, I've kind of uh, hit the speed bump for my writing, uh, kind of paused, but uh, I managed to catch around uh, eight films and I've reviewed uh, about uh, five of them so far. And um, these are all documentaries from around the world. The ones I focused on are from East Asia, predominantly from Japan. So um, the last one I uh, published was Alone Again in Fukushima on my blog, directed by Mayu Nakamura. And um, this was a documentary that was shot over a period of like eight years as she visited a person who stayed behind in like uh, the no man's land of uh of the area surrounding the Fukushima power station and this chap um he's been looking after animals that have been abandoned and uh while she's been visiting him she's been documenting the changes to the town that he lives in and how residents are slowly coming back and there's um decontamination and reconstruction work so it so it shows you the development of the area um like is it like 10 years since the disaster happened uh, another interesting documentary I watched was uh, Inside the Red Brick Wall by an anom- anonymous collection of um, documentary fil- filmmakers, um, Hong Kong documentary filmmakers. That's the name. And uh, In, that's an yeah. interesting title. It's the title actually refers to um, a university that the Hong Kong police laid siege to. This university. Uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic University has red brick walls and um, over the course of um, about I say 13 days the um, protesters um, who were blockading nearby city streets um, were um, kettled I guess you could call it they were um, cornered inside this university and the police had them surrounded and it was like constant bombardment of tear gas, rubber bullets and so forth. And um, a number of uh, documentary filmmakers in this collective were actually at the location and recording what was happening. And um, they show you um, what are effectively scenes of like uh, urban warfare as the police are um, basically attacking students. Um, uh, quite a few of these students are not just university students, but high school students as well. And you can see like, the difference in terms of like uh, forces, where you've got a heavily militarized Hong Kong police fighting against students armed with umbrellas and like uh, you know, homemade uh, weapons and shields is just staggering. And um, it's a really depressing watch as you see like these students get crushed. Uh, and there have been other documentaries. Uh, one a more personal documentary called Afternoon Landscape by um, a Korean filmmaker, Son Ko Yong. And it's like a series of vignettes around uh, quiet areas of Seoul City. Um, and interspersed uh, between these vignettes are childish drawings and um, sort of observations of the landscape. And um, actually made me think of like my own um, experiences in life, my own memories, um, like some of the things that are most prominent in my memories, um, even I've traveled to Japan around the UK, are the, like the quiet areas of cities, the liminal spaces, um, and uh, maybe not like taking part in a big festival. 
uh, uh, you know, holding a shrine. Maybe that's my memory, but actually walking through uh, a street in Tokyo um, to meet a friend or um, being with my mother and sister in a park, something along those lines. And I think the documentary actually captures that aspect of um, memory that we can think about uh, sort of like the most nondescript things. Those things can still exist in our minds. And uh, yeah, I've got a few more reviews to do. Um, there's like a three and a half hour documentary about the, um, uh, it's called Whiplash of the Dead. And it's effectively a look at how the leftist movement in Japan collapsed um, through the, um, and it enters this subject, a very weighty and um, complex subject through the death of a student at a protest. And it's really fascinating. And for like a lot of people are interested in Japanese politics, but they, and um, Japanese history, but they don't quite get the nuances. They're not able to grasp a lot of it. Um, and there's not much that's known. Um, it's not really, um, talked about in, uh, Western media. So I, I find this film is a really good way of entering it. I imagine that's true for, you know, most countries where you don't, live in you know trying to get a you know any documentary or movie about you know any particular country's politics are probably have to make assumptions of what people already know and since most media is made for domestic audiences you know there's generally going to be a barrier for foreigners to to kind of get into it so i th i think that's a fairly normal a phenomenon. Yeah, I found that um, in recent years there's been a, a real spike in interest in Japanese politics and Japanese history, and a lot of people are debating about it. Um, so, and the gap between what really happens and uh, people's perspectives, which are often you know using a Western framing, is huge. Of course, yeah, and I think Japan is partly because of the Fukushima. Uh, partly because of the Olympics and partly because, you know, and uh, what was the former prime minister? Shinzo Abe. Abe. Uh, I was about to call him Endo. I don't know why. Uh, in his like various uh, interesting positions uh, about various things kind of made, made, made Japan a little bit more of a uh, nation of interest in terms of the uh, political ongoings uh, there to the West. There's that push of cool Japan using anime as like um, diplomatic soft power. Yeah. And uh, even though, so yeah, there's this interest, uh, but uh, an understanding of it's still uh, um, to be developed. And I think that this documentary is a really good way of entering it. And uh, another documentary that I watched is uh, Ushiku, which is about um, inmates at a refugee center. Um, they've been kept there in um, uh, like conditions that are sort of uh, infringe upon their human rights um, and there's some disturbing footage in that so it's given you another aspect of um, contemporary Japan right there so yeah I've got a lot to cover um, and I've hit a speed bump where I've kind of stopped writing I need to get back into the groove of things yeah I mean everybody needs a break and I've noticed some of these some of these are available on V Cinema and some of them are on your blog right yeah, I hope to bring more to V Cinema because uh, you know my blog is a smaller outlet, and these films are really good. So um, hopefully, people will get the chance to see them, and um, if my review can help draw attention to these films, that'd be great. Um, in terms of uh, other films, um, 
I've been uh, preparing for this podcast, so I've um, watched things connected to John Carpenter's The Thing. And um, I'm continuing with my Tactics Ogre Let Us Cling Together playthrough. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Listening jealously as everybody in my workplace and in my personal life talks about um, Squid Game. Uh, I'd like oh. to watch it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I can I can say a few words about that. Well, I'll, I'll leave that for the end. But just uh, like I promised last time, I did watch um, the nineteen fifty seven, I think Dracula, starring Christopher Lee. Hmm. And of course, it was good. I enjoyed it as as I knew I would. Uh, very well made. Uh, very a very interesting aesthetic, as as it was the case for a lot of the Hammer films of the time. A very very you know defining aesthetic i i did notice that they make it a point in that film really hard to emphasize that no vampires cannot turn into bats that's just a misconception <laughs> and it felt if it, it felt like such an like a look into the camera moment as if like making sure the audience understands that hey no vampires don't turn into bats and i think it was probably because it was such a high audience expectation and they didn't have the budget to do it so they yeah. really needed to set expected to reset, recalibrate the expectations. Um, they don't turn into wolves either. No, at least not in that film. I also was planning to sort of like do a double feature and watched um, because it was also available on HBO where I watched this one, uh, Dracula AD. I think it was the name where it was uh, like a, it was like a later film, also starring Christopher Lee. But just my internet decided just to stop working immediately after, so I just couldn't watch it. And then I just didn't bother, you know, later on. Although I probably will will want to watch it at some point because it seemed just interesting. Um, I watched the movie Dune twenty the twenty twenty one movie by uh, Denis Villeneuve. Oh, how is it? And I watched it in the theaters, not knowing that it were all, it was also available on HBO. Hmm. Uh, and here's, here's, I have a lot of opinions about Dune. I'm going to try to keep them as minimal as possible. <laughs> uh, but so, so I haven't, I've made it, I think I've mentioned in this podcast before that I have not liked a single thing that Denis Villeneuve has done. At least a single thing that I've seen of his. I haven't seen everything that he's done. And I also, I'm not the biggest fan of Timothy Chalamet. In fact, I'm, I don't like him at all. So I had very low expectations uh, of this film going in. And, you know, the, the, my expectations were surpassed in terms of what I, how I expected, how bad I expected this movie to be. But considering how low my expectations were, that it doesn't, the movie was still not that great, I thought. That's not to say it wasn't impressive in certain things. It was technically, visually very epic, but it also felt kind of formulaic and bland. It felt like uh, and I, I've seen other reviewers mention this, but it felt like uh, like Denis Villeneuve was trying to be Christopher Nolan really bad, and it kind of felt like that. It was sort of like the obvious. Uh, it was kind of obvious in that regard as to what he was trying to do. And it, I don't know, it felt. And also, one thing is that the none of the promotional material make it clear this is just half of the book, mm. and it was like very confusing with the movie just ended like midway through. Of course, it was it's two and a half hours, so it was. A fairly long movie, but it's only half. And I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying that it is half. And there's presumably going to be a second part. I, I mean, I think, I suspect the movie will do well, if not in the box office, then in the home video HBO scene. But I don't know. I, it's, 
in every measurable way, this is a better movie than the 1984 by David Lynch. But I would still recommend the David Lynch version over this one. Only because I feel like the David Lynch movie has more character than this one. This one felt just lacked personality, lacked lacked anything special. It was just, you know, it was just a movie, an acceptable movie by modern standards. It was very slick. It was very, uh, you know, obviously impressive special effects. But I don't know. It just felt like, eh. I, I, and I'm I'm sure I'm I'm maybe in the minority that thinks that. Although the film did did not get the best reviews that it that it was i think uh, what it was expected to get so i don't know yeah but i i mean i still recommend people check it out and i still i recommend people checking out check out the david lynch version because it's again it's a very flawed movie but it is a an interesting movie to watch it has a lot of personality like most david lynch uh projects yeah uh and of course i did watch squid game uh, I was planning to watch only part of it, but then I just decided to finish it because it's only a nine episode le- uh, nine episode long. I finished the last episode yesterday, and uh, it was pretty good. Uh, like I I don't necessarily understand why it's becoming the most popular uh, movie on Netflix. I I didn't see that special what the special sauce might have been that made it so popular. Although I definitely understand why it is popular. It is a very nice. Well made, uh, you know, interesting. It, you know, it, the the structure of the episodes are as you would expect a, a modern series to be, where every episode ends with a sort of cliffhanger that makes you want to watch the next episode. Um, one major criticism that I've had that I have of Squid Show, a uh, Squid Game, is kind of like the same. My my complaint that I had with Parasite in that. It is very good, but it is a bit heavy-handed. Like it has a Squid Show is ten times more so than that. It is a bit more melodramatic than um, than Parasite, which is sort of expected of anything anything Korean. Although it is within acceptable parameters, I would I would argue. Uh, but it is so heavy-handed in terms of the metaphor. You might as well have a big banner in every episode saying this is a capitalism metaphor, like ten times flashing on the screen, because that that's how that's how like obvious it is. It's uh, and I, I'm generally not a fan of that approach. I'd like something more nuanced, something more ambiguous, something more, uh, more subtle. It, uh, it, it was fairly, you know, it, it had a couple of twists and turns that were made it kept it interesting. But I also would not argue that it was entirely unpredictable. Uh, of course, the the acting was very good. The production was very good. The production design was interesting. You know, with all the the. Was, you know, set design and color choices and cinematography choices that decided to go, uh, to go with any recognizable faces. I've, is the guy from Parasite in? Um, not Parasite. Train to Busan in there. Yes, he is. He's has a minor role in there. Yes, the guy from Train to Busan and and Lee Byung-hun is in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's he doesn't he, he's not he's not there uh, in the first episode, but he eventually shows up. Yeah. There are, yeah, it has, uh, it does, for all its pessimism, it does uh, end on a sort of an up note. There's not, there, there, there is a possibility for a continuation, so they did leave it somewhat open, although I'm not sure what direction they would, they would have to sort of slightly take it in a different direction. They can't just kind of repeat the same metaphor. Like just do another Squid Game, kind of like you know Battle Royale Two was the Battle Royale Two. They had they would, they would have to do something slightly different. Like uh, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm ruining anything by saying you know the main character sort of wants to pursue the people that are behind the Squid Game. Yeah. Um, 
I guess all the promotional material and sort of description of of the film makes you think that it's kind of a take on Battle Royale, but that's that's not entirely true. There's something about that in there, but I would argue it's more of a variation on the Saw franchise. Uh, okay. It's then uh, if you see it, I think I think you would agree with me. There is, like I said, there is some Battle Royale DNA in there, but but what I would say is is it's a lot more like Saw, and it it sort of has the same cynicism of Saw and the same fatalism. Sort of like fiendish traps. Yes, I mean the games are essentially traps. That's essentially, and, and in fact, there's a lot. And as you get to the f- more of the games, it actually becomes more and more like Saw, given that the uh, yeah, it's. I don't want to give anything away, but I recommend watching it, and I believe you will see the parallels there. One thing I would say is not as gratuitously violent as Saw, although it is pretty gratuitously violent. However, it's also nowhere near as clever and as multi-layered as Battle Royale was. Yeah. From what I watched, uh, or from what I've read, it strikes me as a spin on the Japanese film As the Gods Will by Takashi Miike, which, okay, um, which I have not seen. Yeah, it's essentially, um, I think, aliens kidnap um, these various high school students and uh, they put them in sort of like arenas where they have to play kids games that turn deadly. That's essentially what it is, yeah. Do you think um, its popularity has come from it being on social media and a lot of people's first interactions with Korean uh, films? I think so. I think, you know, again, it's an entertaining series. It's well made. So I can understand why it's popular, even though I don't necessarily understand why it is quite literally the most watched series on Netflix. Yeah. And I think social media definitely hyped it up. Uh, I think it's sort of, uh, it's, it's, uh, the pitch is a perfect elevator pitch. You don't, it's not complicated. It's not, it's not, there's, you don't have to work very hard to sell it to someone. It's, it, it can be summarized, the, the appeal of it can be summarized in a sentence. And it's, therefore, it's easy to sell. Like, you know, it's perfect, it's perfect to promote on Twitter because you don't need any more than 140 characters. And like, it's, it's a very, you know, people are put in, uh, are made to play kids' games for money or, or whatever. So it's, I think it's a very simple premise, even though I, I'm not saying the, the film itself is simple. It is a bit heavy-handed, but definitely not simple. But the the premise and the marketing material can it's it's the kind of uh, story that can be very easily marketed. Yeah, I, and I I I kind of get the impression that this is like a lot of people's first time with sort of black humor and violence that Korean cinema and um, Netflix Korean Netflix can bring to the table. Whereas if you're more familiar with Asian films, you kind of used to it by now of course yeah yeah that's true and it's also i think uh i think netflix has has uh one netflix has set a stage for these kind of i mean korean dramas are a very popular category in netflix it, it, it was never as advertised as this one but it is especially in the u.s there's i was you know when i first did, i knew this i found this out about maybe five or six years ago, there's a ton of people that watch Korean dramas on Netflix. So the, the, the Netflix has sort of carved that niche out. So it, it made it easier to set the stage for this uh, kind of a more popular Korean show that is not just confined to a certain niche. And I also think Parasite did kind of set the stage for also that thing. Parasite made sort of, you know, brought a lot of people that 
outside that niche, the Korean drama niche, brought brought the attention of Korean media to them, K-pop as well. So I think Korean Korea as a country, Korean media has done a very good job of exporting itself. So the stage sort of had been set, and then Squid Game was just there at, in the right place at the right time to kind of you become very marketable to exploit this sort of uh, conditions that had already been set by a lot of other th- little things over the years. Yeah. This, uh, this is actually um, a product of Netflix Korea, right? Yes, yes, yes. It's a Netflix original. <laughs> yeah. And Netflix is um, doing a, um, similar stuff with anime that they've been buying up studios and um, uh, enrolling animators into like schemes. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Netflix has discovered that that you don't necessarily have to have. It's kind of like the anti Hollywood in many respects, and it's. I think other other streaming are sort of are doing the same or have started doing the same. But Netflix discovered that unlike Hollywood, that needs to to have people see things as many as more people as possible. They need to have billions of dollars in profits. Netflix has discovered that there is profit to be made in niche markets. Yeah. Like, you know, you have a very, maybe a smallish, but very dedicated niche that likes Korean dramas. That's enough to make a profit. Uh, and sort of Netflix has been producing, like, you know, what's um, Son Sonocion? They've, they, they financed a couple of his projects, and Amazon did too. And they've been financing anime, like you said, k- Korean, uh, Indian stuff. Hong, I don't know if they how much of a foot they have in Hong Kong, but definitely Japan and Korea. They definitely have been sort of doing stuff for years. Didn't they do? Didn't they have a hand in the animated Train to Busan production? I'm not sure about that. I thought there was some American one of the American streaming services was involved in that, but maybe I'm just I'm thinking of something else. Anyway, but yeah, they they've been doing that. They they sort of I like that's what I like about Netflix is that they don't do the same. I mean, they they do have a global market, so. Of course, that helps, but they 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 definitely value the niche the niche audiences. Yeah, some uh, great counter programming. Yeah, and that's why I mean that's why now you can make whenever I hear someone say like you know about some obscure movie in the seventies, like I've heard a lot of people say you could not make Monty Python's Life of Brian today because it was too controversial. And every yeah, you cannot make it. You cannot, and I would. My response is, you cannot make it in the traditional Hollywood system. But you can make it on Netflix. You can, anything you can make on Netflix. There's literally nothing that Netflix will say no to, as long as there is a niche for it. <laughs> as long as there's money for it, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like there needs to be a niche target audience. There doesn't need to be a global target audience. Although, of course, they don't say no to that. But as long as there's a dedicated, you know, substantial niche. They will make it because they know how to market to that. Yeah. Well, if I ever do that 30 day free subscription to Netflix, it'll be for Cowboy Bebop and um, I'll piggyback uh, Squid Game onto that. Yeah. Well, like uh, that's, I think that's, uh, that's a good way to transition to news. And that's sort of the only, the only news worthy item that I kind of caught my attention over the week was the Cowboy Bebop trailer, which I found it. I mean, I was looking forward to this series somewhat. I wasn't, super excited for it but i was kind of you know keeping an eye on it and i saw the trailer and i thought the trailer was relatively unimpressive i don't know h- how you felt about it 
I enjoyed it. I felt like um, it captured the atmosphere. Um, the characters uh, looked good. And um, it could be that it had the original soundtrack from the anime blaring in the background and that brought back lots of nostalgia. But Yeah, I mean, it definitely had character, just to go back to my same, to my same phrase. It definitely had, you know, there's definitely a vision, it seemed, from the trailer. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was too short. Like it didn't show enough. I think maybe that was my my main complaint of it. It was he had this like panel style, and uh, what was the main actor's name? John Cho. John Cho. Yeah. John Cho. Yeah. I don't know. I felt he came off as a bit awkward. He felt like he felt like more of his like an eighties music video. He had like that VHS quality about it or something. Isn't the official trailer supposed to drop next week this was just sort of like a, a, a teaser. teaser yeah so that's that's fair that's fair i think maybe i'm not supposed to we're not supposed to uh reach uh, any conclusion i i felt i i guess that's that's my i i kind of expected it to be a main trailer but you're right it's just a teaser and uh but maybe the more the more substantial trailer will drop eventually yeah because we we haven't seen hide nor hair of ein or ed uh, Faye Valentine, uh, the actress playing her is fantastic. Um, yeah, I felt like the actors really caught something of the original characters. Um, I that, that's did you? I mean, the the main Spike Spiegel or Spiegel, however you pronounce that. Did you think John Cho captured that? I mean, you're never going to capture the anime characters with live yeah, action. But it, uh, that's my thing. I there wasn't enough of it. Like I was trying to, like I was looking carefully and saying, okay, is he? Spike Spiegel and there's it ends like there's no that's I guess my, that's what it stems down to I just need to see more to kind of really yeah. judge him you can't you can't judge it from a 30 second video or however long that was yeah I actually felt like his vocal inflections uh, reminded me of um, Steve Bloom who did Spike Spiegel's voice interesting uh, in the American dub I, I've never I don't think I've ever seen the American dub at least not never I've, I've never seen the entire series I've yeah. seen maybe clips of the American dub so I, I guess I wouldn't have a frame of reference for that yeah, that was how I first watched it. Um, so it's kind of like that's the canon voice in my head. Mm. And because it's um, a multicultural future, like having American voices because of <laughs> brainwashing by Hollywood, that's <laughs> that feels more comfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's no... I, I don't think... Is there, uh, it's been a while since the Cowboy Bebop, but there's no remnant of the nations of the old earth nations in that one is there are there i think everybody just fled earth because of like um the uh the moon gate blowing up and everybody's gone to the stars and people who are left behind are like living like uh refugees essentially because it's like space debris bombarding them yeah yeah so it's yeah so i don't think i don't think nations exist so it's everybody just kind of blended in together yeah and uh cowboy bebop uh, knocking on heaven's door. Um, if you like, a lot of the reference material looks like it was uh, taken in New York, which is like the ultimate melting pot. Yeah, well, I I've ne- I haven't seen that one. Oh, so you're you're in for a treat. It it fits in just before the final episode, and um, it's really well animated. Great fight scenes. When was music. that released? I I I I had not heard of that one until like a couple of weeks ago, actually. I, I I want to say 2010, um, but it can't be that late. You have to look it up. 2001. It's 2001. Oh oh okay. Uh, never mind. This is this is 
the movie. Yeah, and the subtitles knocking on heaven's door. Okay, so I I knew about it. I knew I I knew I knew about it. It was just uh, I I knew it as Cowboy Bebop the movie. I have seen it. I have seen it. I I didn't realize it had an alternate title. Yeah. Well, the original series came out in '98, and then three years later, you had the movie. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah, okay, never mind. I, I knew of this. I just, I just didn't, uh, uh, didn't know it had that uh, title. All right. So, any other news items? I, I, I wasn't very good about uh, keeping track of the news this week. But uh, did you, did anything kind of catch your attention? I suppose like uh, Tokyo Filmex and Tokyo International Film Festival start at the end of the month, and um, this is a great place to go see um, contemporary Japanese movies. Um, I haven't looked at them in detail. Usually I try and create preview posts for them, but I'm like, uh, because of that speed bump, I'm behind on things. So I'll, I'll get there eventually. And uh, yeah, uh, please check my blog for a preview posts uh, coming soon, I guess. Yeah, of course. All right. So I think I think that's it for our new segment. Uh, I'm sure there's more, but you know, it, I guess we didn't, uh, we didn't have time to look through everything. Uh, but now we can jump into our discussion of The Thing. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing and everything, uh, everything um, related to it. So, uh, Jason, if you're if you have prepared anything, would you like to give us a plot summary of The Thing, the movie? Okay, so in the winter of 1982, a 12-man research team from America encounter a form-changing alien being that has laid buried in the Antarctic ice for over 100,000 years. Now unfrozen this alien wreaks havoc by assimilating and killing humans in its bid for survival. So you, you mentioned that you, you watched and prepared uh, for, this, for this episode by consuming a bunch of material. So what was, what was, what was that? What was the related material that you did go through in, in, uh, in preparation for the thing? Okay, so uh, the thing is based on Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., who was writing under the pen name Don A. Stewart. And it was a short story released in 1938. And um, In a magazine where he was also an editor. Yeah, was it ama- uh, Amazing Science Fiction uh, Tales? Uh, astounding. Astounding Science Fiction yeah, he Tales. Yeah, he had just gotten the job of Astounding and he, I, I don't, I, and he, you know, kind of submitted that story under under a pen name Don A. Stewart, which was in honor of his first wife, which I don't know if he was still married to at the time, whose name was Donna Stewart. Ah, okay. And and he wrote, he wrote, he had, he he has a few stories under that name. I mean, he he kind of stopped writer writing after he became an editor. That was one of his final stories, I believe. Yeah, this is my first. I I was aware of this short story, but this is my first time watching it. Uh, watching it, reading it. <laughs> Another fun fact: Frank Herbert was uh, also submitted his story Dune. Under in uh, in astounding where John W. Campbell was an editor. Okay, that's a nice tie-in. And you know, and and like a lot of the story was shaped after discussions. I mean, John W. Campbell is a very controversial figure. Uh, he was, you know, famously incredibly racist. Uh, <laughs> All these science fiction writers in the early 1900s were. I mean, a lot of them were, but there's there's a lot of variety when it comes to that. But John W. Campbell was very openly so too. Uh, but uh, he definitely shaped a lot of the the stories that were submitted. So pretty much everything submitted to his magazines, he held discussions with writers about how to improve the stories. 
and how to. So Dune was definitely uh, shaped by a lot of input by John W. Campbell. Campbell. But anyway, uh, go go on about your impressions of the story. Uh, what did you think of it? Yeah. No, it's um. Well, I get you know my comment about science fiction writers and racism. I was thinking specifically of Howard Phillips Lovecraft, and uh, he has a sort of like he came up in serial magazines, and um, like there's a tight knit community, and uh, they shared ideas, uh, mythos. So like the Cthulhu mythos spread throughout uh, different um, writer writers like August Duleff, and um, yeah, it. In terms of who goes there, I found a PDF online, um, and I read it. It's my first time reading it, and um, uh, I was impressed by uh, the actual alien itself. Um, like it's uh, the the hinting of its origin story. Um, there's a lot of purple prose as it leans into um, uh, this alien's uh, met its match of humanity. It can never be our ferocity, and uh, so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think Campbell was not, I mean, he was a great editor and he helped shape science fiction to what it is today, but he was never, he struggled very much as a writer. And I, I think a lot of people would agree that he wasn't particularly the best writer. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's got like a, a, a pro-science uh, slant to it, which is uh, interesting. Um, nothing special. So like the thing that really grabbed me was... Um, the alien being itself. I, I didn't buy into like some of the scientific guesswork because it's a short story. They can only do so much um, uh, investigating, I suppose. Uh, and a lot of the conjectures that the character Blair, the doctor, who's um, effectively the exposition guy, uh, like, like really seemed far-fetched, this guesswork. Uh, yeah, which was fairly me. common of the science fiction at the time. Yeah. His, I think I think it's meant to be said in the future, in some. It's it's not meant to be said in present day, in present in the in the time of the writing. I think it's because there's a scientist there studying cosmic rays, which I think were a very you know a new thing at the time. Yeah, and this all this stuff about cells splitting up. It's like um, I I should have done more research about how advanced um, medicine and um, biochemistry and so forth was at that stage, but it seemed pretty um like ahead of its time. But again, like I think, uh, I don't know what his inspirations were for this story, but um, Howard Phillips Lovecraft at the Mountains of Magnus, um, a science team goes to Antarctica and oh look, we've uncovered an alien that's lying laying dormant for hundred thousand years. No, that that was definitely the most obvious inspiration. So Campbell was vocally critical of of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, but it it is ironic that this this in this study he is it's. It is very obviously inspired by Lovecraftian, the, not necessarily just that story, but Lovecraftian mythos, in like you know the the cosmic horror in general. And I would argue that that whereas the Mountains of Madness is more horror than science fiction, even though it was published in exactly the same magazine a couple of years ago, so he was definitely aware of it. Yeah, this is science fiction. Like there's anti gravity stuff and. Uh... We're going to use technology to overcome this threat. And uh, none of the main characters faint from uh, encountering something that breaks their minds. So, yes, but... of course. Of course. But the, the inspiration is there, this sort of ancient alien yeah. that has, yet yeah, is called sort of incom- who's incomprehensible. I mean, that's, that's a whole Lovecraftian thing. And Lovecraft was not necessarily a science fiction writer, but he's uh, 
all, all his cosmic horror inspiration was inspired by the science of his time. You know, the, the earlier 20th century was, you know, the time where quantum mechanics and relatively sort of were discovered. And they were both sort of mind-bending sciences that you needed very advanced math to understand. And you couldn't, you couldn't reason with them the same thing that, you know, old science, old style science you could. And that's kind of what gave this... Uh, you know, like space-time curvature, and it's like impossible four-dimensional space-time that are sort of impossible to visualize, comprehend. That's that's sort of what gave Lovecraft his inspiration to create his his particular band of cosmic horror, and that sort of that is present in John Campbell's uh, "Who Goes There," but he he takes a different approach where he's where science ultimately triumphs, and his scientists do try to understand like the secrets. Of this sort of cosmic monster, yeah. There's no, there's no, there's nothing. I mean, that was sort of his philosophy, and that kind of what inspired science fiction. Why he was so complimented that his philosophy was: no, humans can eventually conquer the cosmos, and that's, you know, that's why his story ends so much more optimistically than uh, a Lovecraft story. Yeah, but Lovecraft, these ancient beings are unknowable, and um, for Campbell. We actually managed to defeat the alien threats, and uh, yeah, there's a bit the of reasoning, a, yes. a, a nationalistic chest pumping, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I would argue that it's it's not as bad as the movie adaptation, the 50s movie adaptation. Oh, yeah, I, I imagine that's because it was set, well, because it was the Cold War, and fresh out of World War II, and so you've got a bunch of flyboys. This is... a. Uh, the first adaptation of the story is The Thing from Another World by um, Christian Nyby and Howard Hawks, and that was made in 1950. And um, it adapts the story insofar as you've got uh, an alien spaceship that's crash-landed in Antarctica, there's an alien creature, and um, uh, that's about it. The characters are completely different. You've got a bunch of uh, US Air Force flyboys um, locking horns with scientists who want to study the creature. And this is very much an anti-science story. Yeah, I, that this was a first time watch for me. I had never seen this fifties adaptation, and you know, with all its flaws, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty, pretty good. Uh, you know, there was a, and I think, I mean, I there's no doubt in my mind that there was an anti-communist mentality when the movie was making. But I think there is enough there that it, you can read other stuff out of the movie. Hmm. I think I think it is possible. I think it's a, it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it is possible to kind of like watch the movie without the communist stuff in mind. Yeah, there's a few references and uh, security is a major thing for all the soldiers involved. But there's also like concern about how politicians are running the uh, are running the operation, and um, and uh, I actually found the creature in this is really disappointing. Um, You've got like the original is a shape shifting alien, um, very mysterious. This one is like a guy in a rubber suit, and um, that was the trend at the time. They could not really. That was the trend at the time, but they could also not really do shape shifting aliens with that that well in the fifties and with that budget. Yeah, I yeah. mean they could have tried. I'm, you know, that was a concept that had been explored. I think, or maybe in the fifties. I'm sure there are shape shifting uh, alien monster stories, but. Like, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is, is a notable example, which came out just a few years late. And that was another anti-communist, or at least it could be, inter that, that's one way it could be interpreted. Uh, but, but with the budget that they had, this was a fairly low budget movie, I think. Yes, yeah, an RKO picture, so it would have been shot on the quick. Yes. 
so I thought I thought that was a good compromise, and I think it was a novel enough idea that this is a plant based. Yeah, it's a giant carrot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I don't know. I thought it was fun in the context of the time. You have to obviously, if that movie was made today, it would be ridiculous. But I think in the context of the time, it was an interesting concept. Yeah, and it, it, it's it is an enjoyable film. It bounces along. It's got a great B movie feel to it, and um, there's this weird sort of bondage session going on between. The lead male character and the lead female character. Yeah, of course. So there's there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple. So you mentioned your disappointment with the monster, and I would agree that the monster is nothing impressive. But the monster is shown so little. Build up to the monster attacks is really impressive. Where they got the Geiger counters, and then it bursts through a door. And except except the final confrontation scene where you get to see the monster full, you yeah. only get to see glimpses of the monster. So I thought that was well done. I think I think yes, a monster, a guy in a rubber, a tall guy in a rubber suit is disappointing. But I think the filmmakers recognize that and they try to mitigate it as much as possible. Yeah, and, and yes, like I said, the build up was great. There was some, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's the, the the main guy whose name I can't remember and the lady who's that. They there is a heavy implication that they had sex in their previous meeting, which would have been in, incredibly scandalous. Absolutely. They say that they drunk that he was she was drunk or they were drunk, and then he mentions i didn't I didn't expect you'd leave them in the morning, which yeah. heavily implies that they spent the night together and again, she's tying him up and uh, Exa- games exactly so that that was <laughs> like I think fairly fairly advanced for the time, so there's a few notable things that was certainly eyebrow raising and enjoyable to watch, <laughs> yeah, and there's also like a scene where they leave the dogs outside. I thought that was weird, that was fairly cruel. They shake the. They rise up out of the snow and shake their coats. And it's like, do you do you leave huskies outside? I don't know. Yeah, is that normal? Maybe that was normal. I don't know if because how. I mean, they, huskies can stand in the snow, but I don't know if you're supposed to leave them outside all night. Yeah. In any case, they really did a number on that alien. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, this was uh, the first adaptation of the thing. Uh, I don't know if he, if there had been previously radio. I know that there have been radio adaptation, radio dramas of the thing or of the Who Goes There, John W. Campbell story, uh, before. But I mean, have been there have been, but I don't know if there was any that were made before the movie adaptation or the movie adaptation was the first, and uh, and then radio dramas followed or anything like that. But there might, and you know, like the thing is definitely. Obviously, Campbell's story is mostly dialogue, so you can definitely make a radio adaptation out of it. It was fairly prime for radio adaptations. And then I've been at, I remember I, I didn't listen to anyone in preparation, any of them in preparation for this episode, but I have listened to them, and you know, most of them are pretty good. So yeah, uh, this one deviates from the original story by having a woman in it. And um, John Carpenter stated that he watched it at four years old. And... Um, then he read the original short story in high school and he noticed um, the difference between the two. And it always played on his mind that he would like to adapt it into a film himself. Yeah, and the, the, in the original no, the Georgia novella, there's a lot of people die, uh, especially in that one blood test, the blood test, the famous blood test scene. 14 people are just like killed in cold blood because they're discovered to be things. Yeah, it's towards the end of the story, and it's just like, uh, you're next. Oh, you've tested yeah, positive. And they, it is, and whereas the, the, the 50s adaptation, hardly anybody dies, and the few people that die, they die off screen. Yeah, and uh, this alien isn't assimilating anything or anyone. Yeah. 
Whereas jumping into the, you know, the, the main course, so to speak, the 82 adaptation, I watched it back to back this time after. And I, I, I don't know why. I, I mean, I knew that the 82 adaptation is more faithful to the original story than the 50s adaptation. But watching it immediately after rereading the book, or actually, I just listened to an audiobook. I didn't read the book this time. Uh, it was it struck me at how faithful it is. It is almost scene for scene the same. There are a few minor changes. And whereas the story ends triumphant, triumph, you know, with triumph, with mankind triumphing over this alien thing, the 82 adaptation ends a little, in a little bit more ambiguous way that they maybe they did triumph, but maybe they didn't. Uh, there's a question there. But otherwise, it's extremely faithful to the original story. Yeah, you've got, uh, well, in the 1950 adaptation, no, none of the characters have similar names to the novella. Whereas uh, you've, in John Carpenter's version, you've got Blair and McCready and Dr. Copper. In the uh, beginning, the first half about of the of the novella, it's, it's more of an ensemble, ensemble where McCready is not immediately the main character. It's... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's he sort of becomes comes on top kind of later in once they kind of form a plan and he's like you know one of the survivors of course and the one who comes up with the blood test but in the in the movie in the 82 movie McCready is the main character sort of obviously from the beginning and I guess that's part of converting it to a cinematic language as opposed to a literary language I, I don't know John W. Campbell poses like describes McCready like he's the ubermensch like this big bronze guy and uh you know you can see he's gonna take over whereas i felt like kurt russell was very understated you know he's the big star and you've got this ensemble cast who are playing again they're very normal looking they're not uber famous and, and at the time i don't know when this movie came out i don't know that kurt russell would have been the as recognizable as he is today as he is you know watching the movie in retrospect i, I don't know maybe he was in 82 what what had he made at the time then well, he'd worked on, um, what was it, uh, Escape from New York with John Carpenter and Elvis, also by John Carpenter. What what year did Escape from New York came out? Uh, Escape from New York, let me have a look. That was later, right? That was after the thing, wasn't it? No, uh, Escape from New York was 1981. It came out in 1981. Oh, okay. That's I guess that would have, because uh, that was fairly, I think, popular. Yeah, uh, and there was the television movie um elvis, elvis. Yeah, yeah of course yeah so uh yeah he's he's and he's been acting since he was a child as well so yeah okay yeah i mean i, I guess i didn't i didn't know i mean I, of course still he even then he wasn't as big if he was probably popular and recognize probably the most recognizable name in uh at the time but he wasn't a stallone or he wasn't you know a no. big star as as you would expect uh yeah. Elite yeah. as he as, as as he wasn't as big as he is today. That would come later in the eighties. Yeah, and, yeah, and, of course. Yeah, and he would later marry Goldie Horn. Not okay. that has any bearing on our discussion. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the kind of like the the because the the first the original story. There's definitely the element, and this is absent from the fifties adaptation but it is present in the original story the paranoia between the mistrust between the characters but it's not as emphasized again the science and the the task you know overcoming the challenge is kind of i i'd say the focus of the story but i think carpenter definitely there's definitely 
the the science there like everything is in there like the spaceship that is under ice is there the block of ice that they the blood test everything the first blood test which is a failure of course the reasons are different uh so the science is definitely there that's why i always kind of have a problem with people who don't like to say that the the carpenter adaptation is puts emphasis on the science fiction it definitely does but the the but the main focus is the paranoia, which is I'd say a more minor element in the story, but definitely a a major major element of the Carpenter adaptation. That's sort of what he chose to focus on. Uh, I felt like it was a a bigger element in the story because you had that one character, the first one, uh, who's keeping watch over the thing, and like he's constantly complaining about everybody. Everybody's watching me. Why am I the only one on this side of the room? And it gets echoed throughout the story. Yeah. And they lock Blair up, which almost by far. No, I de- definitely it's a, a, a big part of the story, but I'm just saying it's not the main focus. Whereas for Carpenter, it is the yes. main focus. I, at least I, I think so. I think it's, it is. Of course, it does kind of become after they come up with a blood test, then it seems like that is enough. So there's definitely a bit of, a, even in Carpenter, there's a bit of, an element of you know if we put our minds together we can overcome challenges of course you know to two varying degrees of success yeah uh and what causes everything to unravel is that uh people start distrusting each other and then acting irrationally yes and uh yeah you could you can lay it you can say it's a comment on Cold War mentality, uh, but at its heart, it's this like drama of like twelve guys, and you get this through the acting. They've been around each other for a long time. They know each other, and it's really tragic seeing their bonds fracture. And like when um when the characters uh gets killed, you've got Gary. He's like uh oh, is revealed as an alien. Gary says, but I I know him. He's been my friend for ten years. Yeah, but you know when he t- he stole grab the kerosene, he just grabs it anyway. Yeah, uh, that's a, like I, immediately after. Yeah, and so uh, John Carpenter's always playing with the ambiguity of the uh, of the the situation. So the audience is constantly questioning: Is this character the thing? Is that character the thing? And uh, yeah, just to go to um, uh, sort of lighting and costumes. They're in the Antarctic. They're all wearing similar costumes. You um, so you've got uh, like there's where just the scene um where just before Blair is um breaking up the radio room, uh, you see this figure running away, and you think to yourself, could that be Norris or is it Blair? And uh, yeah, there are all these different tricks that John Carpenter is pulling to make you paranoid, just as uh, the characters in the story are getting paranoid. Yeah, of course. So the, you mentioned about the the cinematography and the the costume. So I thought one thing, another thing that I found a little bit impressive about, and I'm going to go back and forth to the all the adaptations and the novel. Of course, that's not not a bad way to carry on the discussion. But though I, I was, I also thought the '50s version did a good way, did, did did a decent job with its cinematography, and you know the snowy landscapes, and you know that that that's that was no special effect. That was a real plane, yeah, uh, taking off and landing, and and uh, in in the presumably Alaska. I'm assuming that's where also it was shot. Yeah, I no 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 no. It was was it um it was like was it Iowa or Minnesota somewhere like that. Um, it's possible. I mean, those are very. I, I lived in Iowa for a little for a while. It's very. It gets very snowy there. 
Yeah, I guess this um, all this surplus equipment left over from World War Two and the Department of Defense is like, hey, yeah, we'll we'll allow you to shoot. Of course, yeah. Uh, but you spoke about sort of the the source or the allegory of the Cold War. I think I think one way that that could also be interpreted in the Carpenter thing is is sort of anti Reaganism because I think and I I try to find a source for this and I couldn't just before the show. But I remember reading that Carpenter was a fairly anti Reagan, uh, anti Reagan guy. Oh well, they live. I could be yeah. I could be wrong about this, but I I remember reading that he was. And sort of that was you know, sort of the Reagan and the underlying sort of philosophy of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a- Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand, however you pronounce that. Is it Ayn Rand? Every person, every man for himself, a mentality. And that's sort of how to, to any challenge. And that's how sort of they respond. They sort of individual, they individual excellence is, which is actually partly... Uh, partly in line with uh, Campbell's philosophy, which is why he's such a controversial. You did say that he describes McCready like an Ubermensch, and that was something that uh, Campbell was very would have very often go back to. Sort of this individual achievement, this sort of individual effort, is Trump's uh, communal effort, and I think that's sort of what the people attempt in Carpenter's adaptation, but they sort of fail. Well, they fail and they don't because. They, they, there is that element of nothing can happen until McCready comes up with a test. Yeah, he, I, there's that, there's constant vying for leadership. Um, some people give it away. Um, McCready comes off as a natural leader, and I, I, f- I feel like in a situation like that, I felt like it was very realistic in the sense that you got people who will cling to McCready as like uh, he's offering a solution, and you got the hotheads around him. But there is, of course, cost. There is, you know, the, the, McCready comes up with a solution eventually, but not without great cost, which is he kills one guy that ended up not being uh, the thing. Yeah, Clark, yes. one of the hotheads. Yeah, and he says that makes you one, uh, I think Childs is the one that says that makes you a murderer. Yeah, he was human, huh? I guess that makes you a murderer. Yeah, also, he also, he keeps saying, I, I love when he says, I don't believe in this voodoo shit. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't. Know, I I always thought that was a very funny line. Yeah, well, um, just to go back to the Howard Hawks one, uh, it was uh, actually shot in Montana, and the uh, okay makes sense. production team, the Carpenter production team, uh, visited the location to see if they could use it, but it hadn't had any snowfall for the previous two years, so they decided to go to British Columbia to shoot instead. Okay, um, and a lot of the interior scenes were actually shot in LA. Um, and it was like over a hundred degrees. Uh, so they're like wrapped up in winter clothes and then they go out into like the universal lot and, uh, they're boiling away. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It's kind of like every, I'm, I'm sure the guy in the rubber suit in the fifties adaptation probably had the same problem. <laughs> yeah. As well as being set on fire. Yeah. I've seen various. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Well, that, that case, there's probably better be a protective suit, which in case I guess it it's the best thing you could have. But I've seen, you know, a lot of these pictures of various people in rubber suits when they take their helmet off and you can see them like sweated, like they're completely drenched in sweat. Yeah. Boiled like a lobster. Yeah, pretty much. So it's, it can be pleasant, but yeah, obviously like, I'm not surprised that a lot of this, I think, I think obviously the, the Hollywood being like Hollywood being, uh, LA being the center of, of the film industry is, it was already established by the 30s, I think. 
But even in the even in the fifties, I think Hollywood wasn't as centralized mm. as as it eventually be, would have become later on. And in the eighties, obviously, that was a no brainer. Yeah, and um, they had some sort of in, uh, yeah, they built the sets in British Columbia, but they also did um, second unit was shooting in Alaska as well. So yeah, you've got the uh, uh, sorry, what were we talking about before I went on this digression? <laughs> Oh, the paranoia, the 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 anti-Reaganism, the every man Anti- for himself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It, with regards to the anti-Reaganism, like John Carpenter's "They Live" is probably like an excoriating um, attack on Reaganism and um, media culture at the time. It is, but I I don't think it's as uh, again like there's the, the whole thing about ambiguity. I think John Carpenter is clever enough to make it more ambiguous. I remember hearing, and this is anecdotal. So it may be true, it may not be true, but at the time, reading about how the election, the movie came out in 88, and that was the incoming election where H.W. Bush, sort of Reagan's vice president, was running against, uh, I forget who, who he's running, who's, who the Democratic opponent was, and of course, H.W. won. And uh, like the, the people, the production company behind the film market, uh, used the election as a way to market and marketed the film as an anti-Bush film. And uh, in hopes to sort of motivate people who were anti-Bush to see the movie. And I remember reading that Carpenter was opposed to that. He didn't like to tie his film to the election. Yeah. Pro, I mean, mostly for marketing reasons, because I don't... And it turned out not to be a smart move, because they lived and do so well. And I think, like, I've read an interview from people at the time that they agreed that they would have been better not marketed, not tied to the election, just marketed on its own merits. I th- yeah, so it sort of like um, depressed uh, a particular market, the conservatives then. They weren't going out to see it. Exactly, yes, yes. But I, th- I think, I mean, They Live could definitely be, be interpreted as anti-regulated, could be interpreted as an anti-establishment film in general. Yeah, well, put large parts of it are uh, set in like a homeless camps in LA. Yes, so th- there's definitely, there's definitely, especially like, you know, like that, and that was not uncommon, that came out in 88. And yeah. then RoboCop came out in 87, then that was definitely an anti-Reagan movie. Yeah, and we're living in the uh, aftermath of Reaganomics and trickle-down economics. You know, conservatives are finally beginning to admit it doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I and uh, I, so I get the sense that, like, John Carpenter's The Thing is nihilistic, but it's also a little bit hopeful because, you know, people are trying to work together. They can't. You know, they they're trying to avert an apocalypse, and it's it's an open ending, an ambiguous ending as to whether they do or not. But at least they're making an effort. Yeah. Well, my understanding was that they did. I mean, whether or not the two final survivors are Keith David and Kurt Russell, whether or not they're infected or not, they're kind of will die. They're gonna die anyway. Yeah. Yes. Like they got a couple hours. The camp's on fire, and then the calls will set in. So they did prevent the apocalypse, although they did not necessarily save themselves. Yeah. And uh, like, uh, I think the video game uses this, where uh, I think you discover the two corpses. Oh, in- oh interesting. So what, can you talk a bit more about the video game? Because I've never played it. I have never played the video game. I've only watched Let's Plays. So oh, don't quote me on that. Maybe better to edit that bit out. Okay. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. So I- I'd like to talk about, you know, maybe the production aspects of... of uh, the thing, but before we get to that, I I, I think because I, I this is one thing that I did not have a chance to see, and that was the the reboot or the remake, the 2011 oh. film. 
Did you yeah. did you see that one? Have you seen? I think you've mentioned before that you have seen that one. Would you like to give us like a br- your brief a brief overview of that and what did you think about it? How does it compare? What does it do well and what doesn't it do well and all that? So yeah, I watched the prequel, um, which came out in uh, 2011, I think. Um, stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Edgerton and a bunch of Norwegians. Um, I watched it uh, when it first came out um, with my mother and sister. And we were all sort of disappointed by it. It was never going to live up to the original, but uh, I think it commits the cardinal sin of being essentially uh, a beat-for-beat remake of the original. So you've got uh, the Norwegian team, that's the way we're going to get back into a story, very cynical way, kind of like um, Prometheus, um, Ridley Scott using, uh, oh, uh, how did we get to the space jockey bits to get to the alien? So uh, you we see what happened to the Norwegian team. And what, the, what John Carpenter's original film does so well is doesn't go into too much detail. You've got this horrible, like, burnt-out um, uh, sheds, and you've got, like, this one corpse with the neck and the wrists are slashed and blood's frozen. Uh, and that these burnt-out sheds are actually the American camp. Like, they'd shot that after they burnt down the American camp. Um, and then you've got, like, this haunting um, video footage of the Norwegians discovering the ship, and um, you've got the ice tomb. And uh, the remake goes into all that detail. And just like uh, Ridley Scott's uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, it's like like the 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 ambiguous, mysterious the bit the bit that catches everybody's imagination. It doubles down on it. Uh, it, it exploits it um, uh, quite cynically, and um, uh, it isn't as satisfying as the original. And it puts in a female character. It puts in two female characters. So that's another diff- that's a difference it has to the first film. Um, I think what it does well is um, it finds another way of creating a test to see who's infected, uh, who's been assimilated. Um, so like the thing can't absorb metal. It can absorb flesh, but it can't absorb metal. Um, but I felt like there were too many uh, sort of plot twists and um, inconsistent um, decisions made by characters that spoiled the film. Uh, it's not. It's not an awful film. It's just not as good as the original. It never was going to be as good as the original. It followed too much in um, the Carpenter's uh, version's footsteps, and um, yeah, it's too much of the alien, too much of the spaceship. I see. I see. Which is, I, I, I guess, I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, I think I've said this before on other episodes. Like, um, I feel like best sorts of remakes or like the best uh, or sequels or whatever are ones that take it into a completely different direction. And this is just more of the same. Essentially, yeah. Or another thing is to to, to take. Uh, I mean, then this doesn't necessarily work, but to take a a bad movie that had an interesting idea but a bad execution and remake that one. But of course, you know, you can't market that. No. Well, yeah. This is like Universal's got this hot property, the thing. How how do we exploit this in some way? Okay, we'll make yeah. a video game and we'll make a prequel. Yeah. There is a there is a couple of. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things that I noticed in this rewatch uh, that are so there is um, so where we uh, I mean we know that the the thing reproduces somehow although it's never explicitly explicitly stated in the movie um, I think in the in the the book is in the story it is I think they they at least come up with a hypothesis of how it reproduce but the, in the movie I don't think there's anywhere stated explicitly how this may be reproducing yeah. 
So the thing, the thing that they find in um, the Norwegian camp, the, like the weird creature with like two heads or splitting heads and three eyeballs and whatever, uh, that could be the thing trying to reproduce mm. and just killed before it could. But it could also be if you look at one of the early covers, and I believe this is a, a 60s or 50s production, like book release of the thing, and Carpenter had definitely had seen it. And the cover has this monster with like a like a really ugly head and three eyeballs. I don't know if you got if you got a chance to see that. I haven't seen that, but if that, you if you just search from, who goes, th- go ahead. Yeah, that's from the original novella. It's got three red eyes and uh, yes, evil look. It could just be that. It could just be that. And in, I think in the novella, that's where Blair is finally transformed from from Blair to the thing. I think that's what that is meant to be a reference to. Yeah, and I it could be that. Like that just could be a reference to. Uh, to like the the cover of the book that was as depicted by the artist, just could be a, a John Carpenter subtle because Carpenter would have definitely been familiar with the artwork that uh, that various iterations of the thing would have had at the time. And the other, uh, I mean, the other uh, the, another thing that struck me is the actual poster for the thing that has that that uh, bright light coming out of the head of something that's walking. Yeah, it's like uh, in the snow gear. Yeah, but that's I don't think that image is ever shown in the film, is it? No. So I think that's also a reference to a scene in the book where they finally go to see Blair, they see a bright blue light coming out from behind the creature that is only silhouetting the creature. Okay, that could be a reference to that. Okay. I think that's a reference to that because then they make that assertion that uh, the the planet of wherever the theme the the theme the thing comes from is only has a blue sun. They don't have like yellow light and whatnot. So that's why he prefers that kind of light and whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. I love the d- description of the thing. Like, uh, you never see, you, you never see its original form. They speculate that it was imitating the beings that built the ship in the novella. And, um, yeah. that, like, it came from a hot planet. And, uh, Carpenter's film, uh, does that brilliantly that you never know what the actual true form of the thing is yeah it can take many forms and you yeah. can learn its intelligence you definitely get that impression yeah the, the the acting of the dog the the wolf dog um when it first gets into camp and it's walking down the corridors and it's like observing everybody is really spooky yeah and it's i mean it's impressive i always think whenever i see something like that i think uh, how they got the dog to be so so well behaved. Of course, I mean these are professionals trained, so I guess it, it might not be that hard. But I'm still always having interacted with with domestic dogs all my life. <laughs> well, tell you can never it. get you can never get them to do anything. No, they're quite interested in biting you. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, I'm always impressed by acting dogs how 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 well they can do them to just like even a subtle thing like just turning his head and observing something. Like just looking out a window, it's just like there's an intelligence there that we're underestimating. So, did you? Uh, what the, what was the name of the cook? The cook on roller uh, skates, Knowles. Knowles. Do, what do you think happens to him in the end? We see him just walk. Oh, I was so frustrated. I, you know, like there are all these like silly moments in horror movies where a character will just walk off from everybody else. I'll we'll go into the basement. You know, that so to speak. And it's kind of like, why after all this happened? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just like, I just like, okay, he's gone off screen and he's died. Yeah. Uh, or he's become a thing. Mm. 
but here's here's my theory about that. So in the, again, I, I think this is just uh, Carpenter's reverence to the original source material. In the, the movies, the, in the movie, this is implied but never stated that the thing is telepathic. Yeah, it's sending out all these thoughts that infect people's dreams. Yeah, and it can certainly read. I mean, the fact that it can read people's minds that to transform so that it makes sense because otherwise it would not be able to imitate something correctly. Uh, that's actually brought up in the Howard Hawks movie, like one of the characters just before the final confrontation is like, uh, what if it can read our thoughts? And then yeah. another character says, we won't like what I'm thinking when it gets yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, nothing, nothing comes out of that. Yeah. It's never fully explored. Yeah, it, but in in the in the carbon adaptation, you definitely you can make that that is implication because otherwise you would not be able to fool the the characters of it imitating someone if it couldn't at least read the thought of the things it's imitating. But I'm wondering if it's because in the oh, in the movie, I mean the in the original stories definitely make make the point that it can also project thoughts, and that's how it can maybe trick people, or maybe it can that's how Blair knows so much because it, it the thing projected its own thoughts into him. Yeah, like here's my home planet, and uh, this is how you're getting uh, all this information about how my cells divide and uh, assimilate. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering if that's sort of like what could be happening to Knowles. He's just he's just the the thing is telepathically luring him by projecting thoughts of something to him, confusing Knowles, and then he walks into the distance, and then he just absorbed by the thing. It does. He like his performance does have that like being hypnotized feel to it or mesmerized. No, exactly. Yeah, because he just kind of walks quietly away into the darkness. Yeah, and um, what? Yeah, in the novella, one of the characters, the, the first character to get assimilated, he's looking at the eyes and he feels like time slows and he goes back to his seat and he falls asleep and then boom, he's assimilated. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. So I th- I thought that was a neat. Again, it could be something, who knows, it's just an aesthetic thing from Carpenter, but I thought it was a, a neat little thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's not much talked about um, telepathic thoughts. Yeah. But it could induce paranoia. That's one way of inducing paranoia. That that could be it. That could be induced. But yeah, but that's, you mentioned it, that's one thing why it's good of it. Like, it doesn't over-explain anything. You know, they go, they, they see the video of... Um, of uh, the Norwegian standing in a big circle, mm. and that's uh, that's uh, like they're, they're, that's an acted out in the original in the first adaptation where they kind of yeah. try to measure the size of the spaceship. Yeah, the nineteen uh, fifties uh, adaptation they it they blow up the spaceship accidentally using the same methods as in the novella. Yeah. Um, in the Carpenter film, it's just a matte painting and uh, a little bit of the set. Yeah, they don't and, go in. I was a bit. I'm yeah. always disappointed when they don't go in the spaceship. Well, they go into the spaceship in the prequel, and it's really disappointing. Oh well, yeah. Well, I guess it's better that they didn't. Yeah, exactly. Just tease it. You don't need to explain too much because, yeah. like, when you explain the origin of something, it it normalizes it and it loses its mystique. Yeah, and, and, and that's true. Except, except, I mean, it is a bit of a plot hole because they don't really have much of a reason for not going into it. They, it's just the storm is coming. I think that's why they have to leave early. Yeah. So, so whereas, like, I think in the the novella and the original, it burns up. Yeah, like they they set charges to try and free it from the ice, and yeah. um, that uh, causes like a chain reaction 
Yeah, of but explosions. It, it's it's not a big like it's not a giant like disappointment or anything that you. It's not it's not what the movie is about. No, the thing is loose. That's the main thing. Like it yeah. staggered away from the ship, and now it's a threat to humanity. Yeah, definitely. You see, you see a, a block of ice, and yeah. you know, and it only like it only makes sense if you've read the novella or if you've seen the original movie. But you kind of can piece things together, and you see the block of ice, and then you see the empty hole in the snow right next to the spaceship. Well, you see the thing jump out of the tomb in the prequel, in- and it's all CG. Oh, oh, you do, you do. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Like they had, um, I read that they had like physical effects, but they switched them out for CG. Interesting. So that's, I mean, let's let's talk about that. So one, I always, I've seen this movie maybe about the the, the Carpenter five or six times, and I'm always amazed at how good it is. Like I, I feel like, and I this, I guess I've said this about other movies as well. But sometimes there's a movie that I remember it fondly. But then I, I always say, it can't be as good as I remember it. I'm just remembering it uh, better than it actually is. But then I watch it, and it, it is really as good as I remember it. And one big thing of it is how good the special effects are in the, in the, in the Carpenter's version. Yeah. I, like, these films are very dialogue-heavy. They're ensemble pieces. And uh, in both versions, the directors do very well in... Um, uh, Cutting away uh, to different things, making conversations interesting. But what's what Carpenter really excels at is like uh, working with um, the cinematographer Dean Cundy to uh, and the special effects guy, uh, it, uh, Rick Bottin, is it? Rob Bottin. But um, they don't show too much of the monster. It's in shadow, and you get little bits that are like spotlit. And the bits that are spotlit are, like, I'm thinking specifically of the husky scene where it's, like, absorbing the different dogs. Like, it's really, like, it, it it's, like, the shadow hides, like, the rubbery effects. Uh, and uh, what you do see is horrifying. Yeah. There's, I mean, he utilizes cuts very light, like you said, and cuts very cleverly to sort of, to sort of show multiple angles of the one thing or just showing showing it moving just oh, enough yeah, so it just doesn't a reaction look, shot yeah it's, it doesn't look robotic because yeah. there are animatronics i think for a lot of them yeah like for the husky scene there are, there's like a, a a floor a fake floor and there were operators underneath uh moving yeah. like tentacles and uh spraying yeah. blood everywhere one thing that i didn't uh, that i i, I wasn't I mean the famous the obviously the 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 blood testing scene towards the end is one of the most famous scenes in the history of cinema uh, extremely well done but there when once one of them is revealed to be the thing or a thing and then the McReady's uh flamethrower is malfunctioning mm. I fe- I felt like it cuts a little bit too fast in that one it just goes back and forth and that was I I think a clever technique because they can't show the thing for very long uh, so they have to cut back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I felt like it just overstayed its welcome just a little bit. Yeah, it's like uh, cutting to it to the guy's shoes, and uh, like yeah, it's it's kind of like you, you have to cut back and forth just to prevent people from seeing too much, and then like suspension of disbelief just collapses. 
Yeah, and, and it's just it's just a little bit like they just go back at like it just lasts that moment lasts a bit too long in my opinion. It could have, and it's such a minor flaw, but it, it, it I did notice it the last time. Like it's just you know you you they would have a you know like Mc McReady just stands in the corner hitting the the you can even hear the clicks the whole time. Yeah, the clicks it's just too long. Like you would have just grabbed a shovel and hit him or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah. and then uh, the guys they've got, they've scream. Got... They've got an armory there, but they just stick to flamethrowers. Yeah, which is the most effective, I guess, because the bullets don't seem to do anything. Yeah. But, uh, um, like, going to just, like, really brilliant editing, like the um, CPR scene, where it's, like, a couple of chest compressions, um, and then you've got the, um, uh, the defibrillators. He uses, the second time he uses it, the chest opens up. It's like a mechanical thing, and it clamps down on like these fake prosthetic arms, and it's just so rapid. It's a kind of blink and you'll miss it, but it's so effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Very, very, and you know, it just it feels so. It's so well done. Yeah, it just punches you like all like. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. And it's so it's like again, it's like he's thought out to the very last detail because it's probably like the thing is fine. It's just acting. Like the body is just acting sub uh, unconscious, but the thing is probably fine. But the electricity is probably hurting it. Yeah, because I think I think in the novel they meant you know the novella they mentioned they they kill one of them with electricity or something. They've got like a shovel. They set up a shovel uh, with like these conductors at the end, don't they? And yeah, they've yeah. attached it to a generator. Something like that. Yes, yes. And in the nineteen fifties version, they use electricity to, to, to finally kill it. Yes. Yeah. So it's definitely you can sort of. Piece that again. You don't have to. It, it it works perfectly fine if you have none of that context. But if you if you do, it also adds a little bit to it that it's probably that it's probably causing pain. So that's why it, it will eat its arm because the things, like like I said, it's so well thought out because the thing doesn't want to kill its uh, it doesn't want to kill or maim its victims. It wants them to take it wants to take over, and it will only reveal itself in a threatening manner once it's cornered, once it can't escape. Otherwise, yeah. you will operate in the shadows and try to, like, you know, telepathically or through other means, through other clever means, to try to take over without causing that much uh, violence or uh, confronting the the humans. Well, yeah, I think that's why you've like there was a short story based on the thing's perspective, and uh, uh, it's kind of like why are these humans <laughs> attacking me all the time? Oh yeah, well that makes makes sense, yeah. And yeah, it's it's a creature. It's fought out. It's on an alien planet. Um, it's kind of like I've got to survive, and uh, yeah, that's how it survives. So it's natural to it. Uh, there's yeah. I mean, the like I mentioned, the special effects are are great. The the cinematography is fantastic. Um, and the music by Ennio Morricone. I, I that was gonna add. It's uh, go ahead. What were you gonna say about it? Yeah, you've got it's very it's like a John Carpenter soundtrack. It's, it's uh, there's some synths and it's very simple, very understated. Yes, yeah, and it's uh, it's ominous at the right bits. Uh, but there was like this moment where you had where they're in the Norwegian camp and there's like strings being shiv- shivery strings. I was like, that's so X Files. That's where the X Files got it from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed that too. But it's, I mean, most of the time you forget about it. It's like not something that is kind of stands out, which is probably yeah. the right move for this. I'm wondering, I mean, because you said, yes, it's it's a very George Carpent- Carpentery uh, type of theme. I wonder why he just didn't do it himself. 
and probably just did it to have Ennio Morricone's name on the screen. I think that's probably the reason. Yeah, or it was like uh, the studio was like, yeah, you can work with this guy, and um, you know, you've got this huge budget. You've got yeah. So the budget, the budget was fifteen million dollars. I, I mean, I, I mean, it was definitely for nineteen eighty two. Was definitely not a small budget, but I don't know that it was necessarily that big. I think, I think Star Trek: Wrath of Khan had uh, a twelve million dollar budget. This is like uh, John Carpenter's first studio picture. Prior to that, it was like television movies and independent films. So it's kind of like give gifting, like Halloween made him the Wonder Kid. Uh, in Hollywood, so gifting him fifteen million is is a bit of a risk. Hey, this is all according to Wikipedia. So Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan had uh, twelve million dollars. E.T. had a ten ten point five million dollar. Wow, okay. budget. And uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture had like a forty million dollar, uh, which would come out just a, a few years ago. Uh, because the Star Trek: The Mo- Yeah, forty four million dollars. So twelve million dollars was acceptable, but by no means uh, a a huge. big budget, a huge budget, yeah, yeah. And you know, if we think about ET as well, I mean, ET was not, uh, you know, like the the effects were relatively simple. Did it? What? Who? Who was the actor in ET? I don't think it had any huge stars either. No, it's mostly child actors, so you don't have to pay them huge checks. Exactly, and I, I also at the time, you know, actors did not uh, get the outrageous amounts that yeah. they do today. So let me just while we're in this budget. Uh, uh, research thing. Let me just check Blade Runner, all the big science fiction movies of the time. Yeah, because the thing was releasing at a time with Blade Runner, E.T. E.T. was released two weeks before the thing. Yeah. So Blade Runner was 30 million. Uh, so I, th- I would say, say that is a, a respectably big budget. And they, it makes sense why that would be, because obviously Ridley Scott was a big name, and, and you can see in Blade Runner, you can see where the budget went. Yeah. Well, Ridley Scott is this really like, if you want a director who knows how to make a visually impressive movie, Ridley Scott's your man. But, yeah, like, Ridley Scott's a known name, Steven Spielberg's a known name, like, um, John Carpenter's come out of nowhere, and yeah. he's managed to make a, a fantastic-looking movie. That's yeah, the test of time, yeah. Yes, of course, and and of course, you know, we, uh, that was also the visuals of the thing where the inspiration behind Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Uh, the Hateful Eight, which is you know uh, a movie a movie shot in thirty in seventy millimeter taking place mostly indoors. Was it split diopters, just like the thing? Um, yeah. What yeah. did you think of that movie? I mean, I enjoyed it as much as I enjoy any Tarantino movie. That I th- I thought it was pretty good, but it was it it was unnecessary. There, was, like I said, the seventy five the seventy millimeter whole thing was unnecessary. Oh, it's been. I, I saw it when it came out, and I haven't seen it since. Yeah, I watched it for the first time last year, and it just like, it like really dragged itself out. It could have been shorter. Yes, I remember thinking that at the time. It could have been. It could have definitely been shorter. I thought. I mean, I thought he did a good job considering everything that had happened to that script, having leaked out and what and how mad, how mad he was about that. Yeah, he did. Was it a live reading of the script, and then he made yeah. the film. He made the film. Yeah, and which is, I yeah again. Nobody would have read that script anyway, like because the audiences don't read scripts. No, <laughs> only only nerdy cinephiles do. Yeah, and even then, <laughs> I don't know. I have to admit, I've got this. Uh, I bought the uh, script uh, I, 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 for Pulp Fiction. Um, yes, I mean that's a good Fargo. script. 
I've I've read that. That's a good script, the Pulp Fiction script. That's a pretty good script. It's so it's so good that you can almost see the movie while reading the script. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a good movie too. I like again. I I don't I don't hate Tarantino. I'm just uh, objective, <laughs> objectively critical of him. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what is no, I, uh, I, Yeah, I respect ahead. him. I I like his early stuff, and I felt Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was was uh, written for. Really interesting. It was really interesting. Like his most original film. Since every other film's a reference to something else. I agree. Yes, I agree. It, it is definitely his most original. Um, what, what else uh, should we talk about uh, in regards to The Thing? Yeah, just like the whole setting, like the outdoor stuff. You had matte paintings everywhere. You had like this really awesome feeling of isolation and these guys were trapped it could be the end of the world and these are the last 12 humans around yeah. they like there's no radio contact with the outside world it's just got this apocalyptic air to it uh which is really uh just compelling and then uh yeah the ambiguity with like there's some great blocking especially at the end where child shows up with the flamethrower and it's like a low angle shot look at this really imposing figure and you're like oh mccready <laughs> yeah it's uh you know you see him you know you see Knowles look at childs from like the the cab like the other cabin and just disappears and again it's the same thing how he disappeared you don't know you have no idea what happened is it was he lured away by something and you know did it was did he manage to i mean it's it everything that he says is entirely plausible yeah but yeah. uh you know who knows there's there's you know I, well, I mean you mentioned the matte paintings and i've mentioned before how much i love matte paintings and uh how they should come back although they're probably not going to come back uh, the guy who did it um i can't remember his name but he worked with alfred hitchcock a lot oh interesting uh, on like the birds oh uh, albert woodlock yes that's the guy so yeah like uh matte paintings i'm not anti cg but matte paintings look a lot better than CG in the, the prequel. I mean, it, it, it depends, but there's just uh, there's something about a matte paint background that just has that. And again, I think this is mostly, again, I, I, I've mostly seen them in the context of science fiction movies where they have yeah. like impressive landscapes. And there's just something it emphasizes, obviously, if you're just trying to show like a busy street, a matte painting is, might not be necessarily the best but you know for something like if you turn like has there's something otherworldly about them like when you show like a landscape yeah it's just so 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 captivating but and then that that, that was the one thing that i want to mention and the other thing is of course it's it's impossible without having seen an alternate version of this film but it's impossible to imagine a better lead than kurt russell for this he's so good in it absolutely totally agree he's so good in it he's just has that like in the beginning of the film he has that aloofness of he's just the helic he's not a scientist he doesn't care about what research is being done in in like he's not like any of the biologists or the physicists that really want to be there because they are conducting research he's just a helicopter pilot and he's there because they need that they need a helicopter pilot he's got that i just work here attitude exactly and then he just you know he takes charge because he's just you know it's partly because of uh you know the main the guy who is in charge goes mad and he goes mad for a good reason he's you know he's taking he's making the a very selfless decision to strand them there as to trap the thing from contaminating the world well i took it that gary 
was in charge and he's like in the script he's des- uh, described as ex-army but you can see he's out of place with these younger guys who, who is gary again he's the one who's walking around with the pistol oh the who guy shoots who shoots the norwegian, the norwegian in the beginning yeah okay i just i, I mean that, I think you might be right i just assumed he was just security like uh i suppose yeah, it could be just prejudice like he's the oldest guy on the yeah. set so but he might charge. be. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it was hard because eventually, obviously, structure breaks down once, uh, like any kind of formal structure that they might have, it kind of breaks down once they they are get invaded by the thing. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, Kurt Russell's just playing it really, really subtly, and uh, like he's he's got this really grouchy air about him, which makes him relatable. They're all relatable, like kind of blue collar workers. It's got that sort of feel that Alien, the characters in Alien have, where you've got the white collar and the blue collar workers and the interplay. And it, it comes out in the acting as much as it does in the script. And you feel like these people being around each other for a long time. And it's really compelling. Whereas, you know, I think obviously the, the original villain emphasizes the scientist. Even though Mc, McReady is not, a, I don't think, Mc, is McReady in the original novel a scientist? I, what is, I forget. Well, he originally trained as a doctor, but then he went to meteorology. So he was able to come up with the test. And that's, that's very common for Campbell. Like even as an editor, he encouraged his writer to put scientists and engineers as, as protagonists of stories. Yeah. And that's, that's one way that he was able to separate the science fiction of the time from pulp fiction. Uh, which was adventurers and, and uh, risk takers, whereas his stories were very much, you know, like level-headed scientists. Anyway, but in um, in in the fifties adaptation, there's a, almost a class separation because you have the military people, and then you have the scientists who are just almost like different, like the different species. They're more aloof. They're the they're, they're the white collar workers, and the military yeah. guys are like the brawn, the blue collar yeah. workers. Yeah, and you have like the main scientist who who is like so cruelly punished for trying to take the reasonable action and trying to communicate with the monster. He's like, he's like almost <laughs> as the filmmakers are laughing at him. Yeah, you nerd. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of, I don't want to say anti-intellectual, but it's anti-science theme running for it. It definitely is definitely like when, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it is anti-science, maybe not, but it's definitely when it comes to, you know, Milit- who knows best, the military or the scientists? It is definitely the military. Well, that's, that's, I suppose that's kind of like when you're ideal protagonists at the time. You want, like, especially coming off of World War Two. Yeah, yeah, of course. And there's like the other scientist who is, disagrees with that one, but he's also very aloof. He's very like tall and imposing, and and it's uh, kind of just weird in general. Yeah, and these are the guys who get beaten up the most. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, obviously, the the side, the one, the only people that die, I think, are the people that the one that I forget names, but the main scientist who wants to communicate with the thing, posts guards, which are presumably other scientists, because he has no control of the guards. They're all military uh, to stand guard. They they are hanged ha- hanged upside down, and we just we're told that we don't actually see it. They're not worth seeing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that might be true. I think it's mostly a censorship <laughs> thing. I know, <laughs> just being flippant. <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, just uh, to go back to sort of MacReady's character, um, I've, uh, I've read that um, he, like, they were all on set sort of work, um, workshopping different things. Like, in the original script, they've got, like, uh, a couple of sentences to describe their characters. And then well, on the set, they were improvising. And uh, one of the things that Kurt Russell came up with is, like, MacReady's, like, a ex-Vietnam 
uh, helicopter pilots and he's got issues, which is why he lives in his shack, isolated from the rest. And it's kind of like, like a lot of these guys would have been in maybe Korea or Vietnam. So they're struggling with their own issues up in the wilderness. And then this thing comes crashing down and just makes things worse. Yeah. I like how he, like his introduction is he loses a game of chess and accuses the computer of cheating. Can't trust AI. <laughs> Which is a very defining, uh, defining moment. It's a very prescient moment as Facebook demolishes <laughs> democracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So anything else that uh, we should sort of bring up about this movie? I suppose like the elephant in the room is the reception at the time. It's like uh, it, it did, it what was it box office 19.6 million in North America. And what, what to be considered a success, you have to double the amount of money you make in the American box office. And the critics, like uh, Roger Ebert, trashed it. He called it a bath bag, and the characters were two-dimensional. And um, other characters, uh, other critics called um, John Carpenter um, a pornographer of violence. And it really, like, it. This was his first studio film. The studio bought him out of his contract to make other films. Uh, yeah, it had really serious ramifications for him. And um, like, I I want to know where the critical reappraisal came from like the the trashing came uh john carpenter said like it, this was released at a time no one wanted a nihilistic story it was too uh perhaps it was too violent um because it was the reaganism was all about optimism yeah and yeah et it's good like morning, a, a, good, good or, morning in america yeah close encounters of the third kind optimistic takes on uh, uh, aliens, and then you've got John Carpenter's the thing, which is like, well, yeah, they indifferent to whether we live or die. They just but wanna... I think Alien did pretty well. If I'm not, I don't, I don't remember, and I, I, I didn't look up any statistic, but didn't Alien do relatively well? And that was just released just a couple of years before that. Yeah, yeah, it could be like, uh, yeah. What well, what was the atmosphere at the time? Blade Runner also did fairly bad, both critically and in the box office. And that's a, like a kind of very dark story itself. Yeah, I think it's possible. And of course, my bias is always to tie to science fiction, but it is possible that there was a certain type of science fiction that it just people did not understand at the time. Uh, and it was just reappraised later. But then again, E.T. was... E.T., I mean, this is a fairly common common thing in the science fiction community, but T.T. is not really a science fiction story. It's just like the the fact that he could just be a, like a pet like a lost pet and that's <laughs> the, you kind of have the same thing of course there's that big flying in the moon but uh, like in front of the big moon uh so there are science fiction elements but the core of the story is really not not that science fiction science fictiony whereas you know i think blade runner and um uh what's the uh, the thing have a lot well like you know require that fa fantastical element to work like blade Runner is all about you know artificial intelligence and the thing is all about body horror and and alienation yeah yeah so like uh it's amazing that critics weren't able to see it at the time i think by the late 80s was i think both these films were reappraised both blade runner and uh the thing were reappraised i don't know exactly who started that or what was the process but i think that was around the time when, uh, when I think they were began to receive to be received more po more positively. Yeah, Did, were you able to find anything about like what's uh, you said you weren't able to find anything about reappraisal? Yeah, 
No, no. But the one thing sort of the, that I read listen to uh, other commentators' comment is that Carpenter was doing pretty well at the time. So he had Halloween, which was a huge success. And like you mentioned, which makes sense, the Escape to New York, which was also a pretty good success, both commercially and critically. So I wonder if the you know critics just wanted to bring this guy is like on a meteoric rise if they just he died he tried something new let's not give him the benefit of the doubt let's bring him down a notch so he goes back to making the things that we liked from him yeah i never put that past critics maybe that's true maybe there's nothing to that i don't really know yeah i yeah it would be yeah it's hard it's hard to judge you know but it was a, a real surprise to find out that it did do as well as it did it's a, it's a genre-defining work now. To go back at the time of its release to see that um, critics were quite dismissive of it. Yeah, it was a real surprise. Yeah. It's, you know, and I, why, why I'm speculating that by the late, just a few years later, it had been reappraised is because The Fly by um, David Cronenberg did much better. And that mm. was fairly comparable. It's, it's a science fictional story with body horror elements. Negative ending. <laughs> and a negative ending. And I think that is... Uh, and apparently that has a sequel too, which I've never seen. I had no idea it had a sequel. <laughs> it has a sequel and it's the kid. I think it's the... Because the, 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 the woman is pregnant by the end. Gina Davis. Yeah. And that's also... I mean, that, that, that has... It's, a, it's a based on a... On a I think it's a, a, a it? short story. Did Vincent Price... Do a version of it? The original was by Vincent Price. Yeah, the 50s adaptation. So that's what I was going to say. It has a 50s adaptation. But there's, there's a lot of common in, in common with, uh, with the thing. So yeah. the 50s one is... Um, Vincent Price is in it. He's not the main character, but it, he is in it. Um, and it was, you know, it was very well acclaimed. And the sequel was released in 89, yeah. The Fly 2. Not okay. directed by David Cronenberg. <laughs> Quick, before people forget about The Fly. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying I probably a few years later, it just the, the stage had been set. And, you know, I think the fly did well. So people said, wait, let's let's take another look at this uh, at this thing thing and see why that was kind of similar. Maybe that wasn't that bad. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate that the film didn't do as well in its time. And, it, you know, I think this was like, I think the not the beginning of the end. For Cronen for uh, Cronenberg for uh, Carpenter <laughs> because he did a lot of great movies afterward, but I think this was the time where the beginning or of like the plateau where he will continue not to be as well received from the crit from the critics and perhaps audiences alike. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, like it's... A, a Big Trouble in Little China, a great film, but I don't think that did that well at the time, did it? I, no, I I don't think it did, and it is a really good film. It is a great film, and uh, also the one that you just mentioned, uh, They Live. Mm. That's Prince of also Darkness. Great film, Prince of Darkness. In the 90s, he was kind of, kind of a... I think he hasn't done a movie in forever. Uh, the last one was The Ward, which I actually reviewed on my blog. I went to the cinema to see that. And that was 2010? 2010, 2011. Uh, yeah, and how, how was it? I, uh, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It's like with... Um... It, the setting is a mental hospital, and you've got all of these different characters, so uh, uh, all of these different patients, and it's kind of like, if you know the setting, if you know the genre, you know where it's going. Um, I enjoyed uh, the performance by, uh, oh, what's her name? She's married to Johnny Depp. 
I don't she, know. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was nice. I, you know, basically, I was happy to see um, John Carpenter was still making movies and he still had had it. You know, and I enjoyed. Yeah, uh, Jared Harris and Amber Heard's performances were good. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't really need to make because he, first of all. That Halloween theme that he composed, everybody uses that. That's just it must be drowning in royalties from that one alone. Was it Richard? Was it uh, Adam Curtis uses uh, John Carpenter's music in all of his documentaries, so he yeah. can make capitalism sound really menacing? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Every everyone like that just pops out. I mean, he obviously collects royalties from some other film from other ones. But um, what was I going to say? So, so in his apparently, and he's not like his idol. I think he's been involved in the comic book industry for the last few years. He also does. Uh, he's a musician. Uh, he does concerts, and he likes playing video games as well. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think he's involved creatively with video games. Uh, no, I, uh, I don't. I haven't seen his name attached to any video games. A carpenter acted as executive producer, co-composer, and creative. A consultant for the new Halloween film series. Oh, so, yeah, he's attached as producer to the remake of The Thing as well, isn't he? To the 2011? Uh, no, I'm not sure about 2011, but uh, the, no, the one that was announced last year that they're going to uh, remake um, John Carpenter's The Thing and they're going to draw upon the 1950s movie and the novella. Yeah, but that could be just, hey, can we put your name on and we'll give you some money? And he says, yeah, sure, whatever. Well, either so, way, he's making money. So yeah, so that's not necessarily meaning that he's involved in it. Okay, okay. so I think I think that's it because we're kind of rambling on now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think that was a good discussion about the thing. And again, this is a, a special episode for uh, for Halloween, which should come out, you know, a couple of days before. Hopefully, the people that are listening to this, you know, it's uh, it's a it's released in a timely manner, which it should be. Uh, but other than that, is there anything that you'd like to end with, Jason? Plug anything? Uh, mention anything? Uh, yeah, I just hope uh, people listening to this have enjoyed it. And uh, please let us know what you think uh, via Twitter, via the website. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, uh, hope you, uh, if you're going to watch a horror movie this Halloween, please try uh, The Thing by John Carpenter. I, I, I second that opinion. Uh, all right. So I think that's it for the episode, for this special episode of Heroic Purgatory. Uh, we're not sure when the next one, of course, we're not sure when season three will start, probably sometime early in the next year, just like probably around the same time that season two started. And we have not decided anything about the theme of season three. I don't know if you have any ideas, Jason, uh, but we, we can certainly talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, but we'll definitely, you know, come up with a, you know, a few more specials between between now and then, and so you can we can just, you know, still talk about movies, maybe Asian movies, maybe not Asian movies, who knows? But uh, our season three will definitely be coming up sometime in twenty twenty two.